So, tonight we're going to look at um, the Lord's Table from Scripture. Last week we looked primarily at the Lord's Table from history, looked at the different positions in it, and I started last week with a, a quote from Spurgeon and uh, challenge us to think about whether, is this, is this how we think about the Lord's Supper? I'm going to start off with another quote, but this time from Tom Schreiner, his professor of theology, or uh, New Testament exegesis, rather, at Southern Baptist Seminary. He says this, In the Eucharist, we experience a meal with Jesus that looks forward to the wedding banquet the church will share with him in heaven. What a wonderful thought. Do we think of the Lord's table in that way? I'm following um, Tom Schreiner's uh, outline that he has in the book Baptist Foundations. If you want a, a really good book, on Baptist polity, the book Baptist Foundations is, is a good one. So as we look at the Lord's Supper, we're going to look, the, look at the synoptic Gospels primarily. What are the synoptic Gospels? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're the together Gospels. They follow a, a similar thing. John is really the one that... Uh, Stands out different, almost sometimes frustratingly so, in the timelines of things. But the synoptic, synoptic means together. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to be looking at uh, the Lord's Supper from there, and then we're going to look at the Lord's Supper according to Paul. Um, so here, here's a, several points that we get with the Lord's Supper. What is the meaning of the Lord's Supper? And... Um, as we look through it, we're going to see six points that come out of the synoptics. The first is there's a connection with the Passover. In fact, you see in Jesus saying in uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 15, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So what was the Passover? What was Passover? Yeah. Yeah, the blood on the, of the lamb was spread over the door. And so the angel of death did not come and consume those that were in the house. Anyone that was covered by the blood of the lamb, they passed over. Passover was uh, something to be celebrated by the Jewish people. But it actually, it foreshadowed something else. And what did it foreshadow for us? Actually, a greater Passover, a greater exodus that we would receive in Christ. And Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 43 in several places. But Isaiah 43, 5 and 7, 5 through 7, it says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who has called my name, whom I've created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is speaking of a future exodus that will take place that is, for, that is realized in Christ. And so the Passover took place as a historical moment in the Israelites' history. But it was to show us a greater reality that we would receive in Christ. 
Christ brings about a second exodus. And when you look at the Old Testament, the most significant event of the Jewish people was what? It was the exodus. And so in Christ, we have a full and a complete exodus. Now, speaking of exodus, if we go to the book of Exodus just for a moment in chapter 12, verse 26, this teaches us something about the Passover. It teaches us something also in how we should think about the Lord's Supper. So, the Lord's Supper itself shows us that by, it reminds us that by Christ's blood covering us, that we are passed over in death, right? That's the connection for us. But there's something else about this I want us to see that's very practical for us. In Exodus 12, verse 26, it says, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Now you think about this as that we do the Lord's Supper once a month, and it's a peculiar thing. We pass out these little tiny cups, and they have juice in them, and a little piece of bread. That's not a full meal. Why do we do this weird thing? For a child, that's, they, they, they don't understand that connection. So they're observing that happening every month, and there comes a point where the child says, wait a second, why do we do this? What does that give us an opportunity to do? Share it. Sure, this is why we do this, is because the blood of Christ covers us. His broken body made atonement for us. And so we want to trust in the Lord Jesus by looking to the Lamb, the Lamb of God. We can be saved and have eternal life. So it's an opportunity to share with our children. But is it only with our children that we have an opportunity to share? You think about it like this, is that when we do the Lord's Supper, this is announced every time we do it. We, we, we practice a, an open but closed service. It's open to those that are baptized believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if someone says, well, you know, I haven't. I, I want to be part of this, but you know, how do I how do I partake in this? Well, it gives us an opportunity to say, you know, you can look to the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You can be covered in His blood as well, and then you can partake in this memorial offering that we do every month in celebrating and recognizing what the Lord Jesus did, just as they did with the Passover, and that it pointed to what God had done for them. So we look at, we see the connection of the Passover, and the Passover, we see what was accomplished by God in the Passover, but we also recognize just as the Passover, we have an opportunity to share the gospel every time we do the Lord's Supper. And back in Luke, there's the other aspect of this, so we see the Passover aspect of it, now we see the symbolic aspect of it in verse 19. It says, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, what famous theologian took that literally? Very adamant about it. Luther took that. He missed the point that it was symbolic. 
there's a symbolic aspect of it is that we look at it as a memorial, that we look at it as a symbolism of a greater reality. And here's what it is, is that as you partake of bread and as you partake of uh, wine or the juice in our case, just as food is necessary for life, so is Christ is necessary for salvation. So as we partake of it and we're thinking of the food aspect of it, what do we need to survive and to live? We need food. We need liquid. So every time we partake of it, it reminds us of our dependency upon Christ. And that in His death we receive life and are completely dependent upon Him, just as we are dependent upon food. The third aspect is covenantal. Look at verse 20. This is in Luke 22 still. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, the old covenant, just as a way of contrast, the old covenant was enacted by sacrifices and the shedding of blood. And so you see that in Exodus chapter 24. In verses 5 through 8, we read this. And he sent, young, he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings to, of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So in the old covenant, there were sacrifices and there was shedding of blood. So when we see come to the new covenant, it's the same thing, that we see that there is shedding of blood. But what we see is in the new covenant is something different comes with it. Can anyone tell me where the promise of the new covenant is most clearly shown in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. So when Jesus is bring, gives them the cup, he says this cup is the new covenant. And so in the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus enacts the new covenant. And it is, in fact, a new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 says this in verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second And so, as we look to the Lord's Supper, and Jesus specifically said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, we look to a better covenant that is enacted, as the author of Hebrews says, on better promises. In chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 15, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And so, as we partake of the cup, it reminds us of the promises that we have in the new covenant, better promises that are given to the church. The next aspect of this, if you look to Matthew chapter 26, in verse 28, is we see a picture of the atonement. So what we've seen so far is the connection with Passover, and I realize that I'm going through all of these quickly. We, we could spend an evening on each one of these points. We see the symbolic aspect. We see the new covenant aspect. But now in Matthew, we're going to see the picture of atonement. In verse 28 of Matthew 26, it says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So in Jesus' shed blood, there is an actual accomplished forgiveness of sins. So when we partake of the cup, what should we be reminded of? In Christ, I'm forgiven. Christ has paid the price, and because of his blood over me, I'm forgiven. The world can condemn me all its once. All, all, all my friends can, can say what they want about me, but in Christ, I'm forgiven. What a wonderful reminder. That every time we partake of it, we are reminded of the fact that Christ shed his blood and offers us forgiveness and has forgiven us. There's also another aspect, that, that's the eschatological aspect of it. What's eschatology? Yeah, it's, we say eschatology is the study of end times. So the es- eschatological aspect of it is the end times aspect of it. We oftentimes think of, okay, the forgiveness of sins, what Christ accomplished, and what's the present reality for me now is that I have a forgiveness of sins. And those are all true. But there's also something else wonderful about the Lord's Supper. It doesn't only teach us to look back to what Christ has accomplished and to be thankful for what we have right now, but it also teaches us to do what? Look forward. Do we always are looking forward? In fact, we read this in Matthew 26, verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, the Lord Jesus promises there's a day that he'll, he'll partake of this Lord's Supper with you and I. Not just spiritually present in the elements. Not just spiritually present with the church. But physically, Jesus promises there's this day that this wedding banquet is coming where he is going to, he is going to have a meal with his people. And so we look forward to the promises of Christ's return. And the sixth aspect of this is the communal nature of the mill. And that is that we do this together. He did this with the disciples together. Now this brings up a really important question. And there's people on both sides of it. Did Judas partake of the Lord's Supper? Did Judas partake of the Lord's Supper? I don't think so. 
text never actually makes it clear they were all there. But if you look at John chapter 13, it says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, Quickly, but what are you what you are going to do? Do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this. Some thought it was because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. So pardon? I was just Yeah, so what a lot of people say, and this is, this is where the debate centers on, is was that the Lord's table? And so, because when we read in the Synoptic Gospels, everyone's there. And we know that Judas disappears at some point in the mill. So, um, I don't hold that dogmatically, but I think that Judas left at that point and the Lord's table was given afterwards. But, I want to make the point, though, of the communal nature of it. The disciples were there. It's something we do as a church. Now, the next place we look is with communion and Paul. If you look at chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, I'm going to just bring out various points through these. If you have a question, please ask. And I'll do my best to answer it. And at the end, I'm going, to, I'm going to cover commonly asked questions. And if I miss a common question that you might have, then ask me. So, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What's the emphasis here in these verses? If you had to say there's an emphasis in there, in those verses, what is it? The body of Christ. And would you mean by the body of Christ, us? Yeah. That's, that's what I see too. It's that communion aspect of it. In fact, this is where we get that word communion, is the word participation can be translated communion. And so it's something that we do together. Together we reflect upon what Christ has done for us. It's something that we do when the church comes together. So, should I do a private communion? Well, that's actually contradictory to the word communion that's meant to be done together. Now, if you go over a chapter, chapter 11, verse 17, this is the passage that 
that I read every Lord's Supper, I just want you to see the communal aspect of it in this passage. In verse 17 it says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together... So that phrase, you, when you come together, this is something they do, the church does when they come together. In verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church. So again, it's that communal aspect of it. Verse 20, when you come together. So we just to belabor the, the, the point, verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat. So the, the whole point that is we saw in chapter 10 and then also in these four verses here is that this is something that we, we do together. It's to be a family event. It is to be a family affair. Now, when we come together, I want to pull a practical aspect of it. In verse 33, it says this, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So what was going on in Corinth in the context of this passage? You had the rich that were showing up and they were partaking and cutting in line in front of those that didn't have much and some of them were maybe getting drunk. They were eating. There was none left over. So they were abusing this and Paul is, Paul is getting on them about that. And so what does verse 33 say that in this communal aspect that we actually have an opportunity to practice what? Hospitality, fellowship, generosity, kindness. You could just lump it all together with those what type of passages that we spend a lot of times looking at? One another passages. In fact, this is one of those one another passages. It's for one another. So in the Lord's table, in this communal aspect of it, we actually, we actually have an opportunity to practice selflessness. What was the church of Corinth doing? Practicing selfishness. So the Lord's table is communal, and as we come together, we have opportunity to serve one another. You see that Paul brings out the memorial or the remembrance aspect of this in verse 24. We read, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So there actually has to be some form of formal instruction that comes along with it. Uh, I I was told by a friend that a church, the way they would practice the Lord's table, they had it kind of like set up in the back of the church, and they said, you know, as you leave, you can partake of it. Just go ahead and grab it on your way out. That's not a remembrance of Christ. That's not, that's not what Christ instructs us to do. I mean, there's no time to, to, to even contemplate what it is you're partaking of. So what is it we remembrance of? It's that forgiveness of sins the sacrificial death of Christ, and the implications for us in this communal aspect of it is how we are to treat one another. So every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, 
we think of all of the wonderful benefits we have and the wonderful benefits that we will receive in the eschaton, but we also are reminded every time we partake of the Lord's Supper is, I get to treat you with gentleness, kindness, and love, and be serving, and to be selfless. Every time we partake of it, we need to be thinking of the communal aspect of our life together in Christ. So it's not only what I receive, but also what I can give. As Jesus laid down his life for us, shall we not lay down and lay aside ours for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, Paul also brings out the eschatological aspect of this in verse 26. He says this is for... As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul actually instructs us that not only are we to look forward to what Christ is to do, but we're actively to talk about it, to remember it, and we are to share that. He says, you are to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, we look at the visible aspect of the bread and the, and the wine, and it represents the body and the blood of Christ, which represents his death. So we are to represent his death until he comes, which means one day he is what? He's going to be here. He's going to be here. There's also a fifth element that Paul brings out. And that is judgment. That is the judgment. Verse 27, Paul writes, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that is a despicable manner, will be guilty, that is they'll be held accountable concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now the question here is, what is the body referring to? Is it the body of believers, or is it to consider the body of Christ? that we're not thinking about the body of Christ. Those are the two different views that, that exist there. Um, I, I think that sometimes when we force in the text that it only means the body of Christ, or we force into the text it only means the body of believers, we miss the point. What was the church of Corinth guilty of? They were eating and drinking, and and how was it that they were doing that? Yeah, Paul says, there's factions among you. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead and with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So number one, they're certainly not thinking about the body of Christ. What Christ did in his body. 
Because if you think about what Christ did in his body, he did that for us. There is no way that you are going to assert yourself over someone else. And then also, it would be equally true that you're not thinking about the body of believers at the same time if you would treat others that way. And so there is a way that we would eat this that we're unworthy. Now, are any of us worthy of partaking in this wonderful meal? No, it is only by the shed blood of Christ, which we're reminded of that when we partake of it. So that's the first thing, is we have to recognize when we partake of it, I'm not actually worthy to partake in this. It's because of what Christ has done. And then if I think that, then I recognize, well, if I'm not worthy of this, how should I treat my brother or sister in the Lord? I should treat them better than myself. So I, I think at the end of the day, we need to look at it as, regardless of what position we take, if that is that body, the body of Christ, or is it the, the body or not, either way it amounts to the same thing, that we need to be thinking about Christ and thinking about one another. Now some commonly asked questions that I get, and so these are questions that I get often, so I'm going to try to do my best. The first one is this, is how often are we to partake in the Lord's Supper? I think that's the most common question. There's no definitive verse that tells us. No verse tells us that they, they did this every single time. That being said, to me it looks like in the Scripture that they did it every time they gathered. That's what we see described. Uh, especially in looking look in the book of Acts. Um, it, it seems like that, that that's what they did in those first few chapters of Acts, is that they were, when they gathered, they would do the Lord's Supper. And so, um, when Paul says, so when you come together as a church, that seems to indicate to me that it was frequent. Uh, now, throughout church history, people have debated that, of whether that can be inferred from that or not. I, I tend to lean towards that it, it was a weekly thing that they did. Um, but again, there's no, no, no definitive this happened. Can I kind of just flip the question on its head a little bit? Why wouldn't you do it every week? Like, what's the argument for not doing it? Uh, tradition, usually. Uh, like when, when Calvin got to Geneva, they did it once a year, and, and that was a practice that was carried over from Catholicism, and Calvin wanted to do a weekly one. And the Genevan consistory eventually allowed them to do uh, four times. And so Calvin was like, okay, that's a win. We'll do it four times more than just... Um, but, but Calvin believed that it was once a, once a week. And so in that situation, it was, it was tradition. And same within this local body. We do it at the final Sunday of the month because that's just how we've always done it. I don't know when that started. That happened before me. And I'm guessing that almost everyone here would say, yeah, I don't know why we chose that, but that's when we did it out of convenience or whatever. And then, so that just becomes the, the norm. If I remember correctly, and I can't tell you how many years back, it's been a long time ago. We used to do it once a quarter, four times a year. And then the deacons at that time, whoever they were, decided, uh, Cheryl maybe remember more specifically about it than I do, but um, then they decided once a month, That's interesting. It was a quarterly thing. I, I can't. Was it quarterly as a kid? When I, it, we, yeah, ours was quarterly too. 
Any, anyone else have a different experience in a church? First Sunday of the month. Now, I think this question should, you, you'll, you'll all be able to know my answer to it. Should we do the Lord's Supper privately? No. Uh, when I first entered into the ministry, um, it was a practice of the church that I was at, and someone had given me a little traveling kit to go and do Lord's Table for people in the hospital. And, um, you know, I later came to the conviction that that's actually not biblical to do that. Um, and so I, I don't think it's something that's to be done in that situation. I think it is something that's to be done when the church comes together. And there's, there's some reasons for that. Um, because the text does tell us that they did this when the church was, was gathered. Um, but in that situation of isolation, that per- person's not able to actually practice some of the things that come with the Lord's table that we're taught are part of it. Um, and so in the Lord's, uh, you know, you know, in the Lord's plan, and there's there's comes times where people can't partake of that. You think of someone that comes to Christ later on in life um, that wants to follow through with baptism, but physically can't. I had a situation where um, a gentleman came to know the Lord, but he physically could not get into um, the baptismal. And by the time we had constructed and figured out a way to get him into the baptistry, he. Um, he was a retired police officer. And so I contacted several of um, Christian police officers I knew. Can you help me? We'll get this guy in there. And they said, yeah, we'll do that. Well, at that time, he was in the hospital. And, we, you know, so he wasn't able to partake in that ordinance. Um, but it's like the thief on the cross. He couldn't be baptized. You know, but the Lord says, I'll see you today in paradise. Um, and so that happens. Now, who should give the ordinances? This is another question I get often. Who should give the ordinances? This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is virtually the same verbiage as the London Confession of Faith, the Baptist Confession. The Lord Jesus hath, in this ordinance, appointed his ministers to declare his word of institution to the people, to pray and to bless the elements of bread and wine, and thereby to set them apart from a a common to a holy use, and to take and break the bread, to take the cup, they communicating also themselves to give, both to the communicants, but to none who are then not present in the congregation. So according to both the 1689 and the Westminster Confession of Faith, who is to administer the Lord's table elements? It's those that hold office. Now, you might say, well, where do you see that in Scripture? Specifically. You don't. But we do see this, is that there should be instruction of the word. Would we agree in that, that comes with the Lord's table? Because of the aspect of you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, The remembrance aspect. So, um, Paul later tells the church of Corinth, and I can't talk to the the authors of the 1689, the Westminster Westminster Confession and ask them, why specifically did you, did you get there? Although I think I would know some of their answers. But Paul says this, but all things should be done decently and orderly. So the Lord has designed his church in a certain way, and it was for the purpose of order. 
And so I would say that that would be an orderly way of doing it. I would, I would fully affirm what both Westminster and 1689 says. It's just not, it's not just something we willy-nilly do. Like when we think about all of the aspects of it that we've seen in the scripture, it's a heavy moment. It's, it's also a celebratory moment, right? And so it should always be instructed by the word of God as we do, do it. Now, what were the elements of the Lord's Supper? The text always uses the word fruit of the vine. What is the fruit of the vine? It's wine. It's wine and bread. Um, that's it. It, it is. Uh, and that's what was used there. Um, there was in the temperance movement in England a movement away from that. And then in the United States, what, what took place in the United States that moved us away from that? Prohibition. And you had the invention of what company? Welch's. Yeah, but, but, but the church has always practiced it with that. Um, with, with that of wine, it's interesting. I, I was reading in, um, if you look at the commentary on the Baptist faith and message from 1963, Herschel Hobbes wrote a commentary on it. Does anyone know the name Herschel Hobbes? He was a president of the Southern Baptist Convention and uh, wrote this 1963 Confession of Faith. He says in his commentary, he said that it was in fact juice, but just as the bread was without leaven, so the the juice would have been without fermentation. That is a silly (laughs) argument that cannot be maintained in Scripture. Um, But you can see the links that some would go to to say that this was, that 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 meant juice. Um, that, that's that's just clearly not dealing with what the text of Scripture says. Yeah, and I, I don't know a whole lot about winemaking from the first century or the 21st century either, but um, from what I understood is that they would, they would, I mean, definitely there was winemaking going on. I mean, Noah made wine. Um, got him into trouble, too. But uh, what, what they would do is they would crush it and it would set out, they would store it. Um, most of them would not store for more than three years, but they would store it. Uh, it was the drink of choice. It was sometimes diluted with water. Sometimes it was used as water purification. Um, but in fact, there, it was certainly something in use at that time. We can't understand that any other way because what does Jesus say in John chapter 2? He says that the, the, you guys have reserved the best for last. Usually after everyone's gotten drunk, then you give this stuff, you know. So um, it was clearly, clearly wine that was used. But the thing is, is we don't know, okay, how, what was the content of it? What was the mixture of it? What kind of grapes did they use for it? You know, there's a lot of things that we don't know. What, what, what about the bread? Do we get bread that from grain that's imported in from Israel? So... I don't, I don't want to make ridiculous arguments, but I'm just saying well, there's a lot we don't know. Yeah, Dwayne? And on that point, I'd like to put forth that wafers are not bread. Are these a life substance? 
<laughs> it's it is a kind of a. <laughs> Bear with me for just a moment. In Palm Mountain, once a week or once a month, we make enough bread. I mean, we only need a little cube of peas. <laughs> if hey, if someone wants to volunteer to make that, I think Thompson can make both elements. So. He actually is. So. <laughs> um, any, any questions? That just gives us a flyby. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, and why is that? Yeah, because baptism is that formal uh, introduction into the church. That is that formal, I am now part of this covenant community, and then I partake in that. That's, that's not, when you say we, that's not just a Baptist doctrine. That is universal. Whether you're Roman Catholic, or you're Presbyterian, or you're Reformed, baptism is always the prerequisite, because that is our initiatory sign that we're part of that new covenant community. And so that's why, is because that's, that precedes it. That's a good question. That's a really good question. I got one more. Yeah. So um, they were misusing and getting dropped on. I mean, is it, are they, were they referring to an overall meal? They're crowding line and all this other stuff. I'm trying to picture this in my mind. Was it an overall meal that they were taking advantage of, or was it those actual things that were taking advantage of? That's a good question. Uh, it, it seems like uh, both. Yeah, yeah, it does. But then, but then, but but then, Paul goes into the explanation of the meaning of the Lord's Supper, um, and talks about the bread and the wine, and specifically. So, um, but then he get, later goes and says to something to the effect of, "Well, you have homes to eat in." So, it, it seems like uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they were being they were being gluttonous. Yeah, good questions. Any any others? All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the institution of the Lord's table that you have given us through your Son, and uh, all of the benefits we receive in the Lord Jesus through it. And we are reminded of our forgiveness of sins that we are reminded of what Christ has done for us, uh, that we are reminded that his blood covers us, and that in that we're also reminded of how we should treat one another and how we're to uh, live life with one another as a church. We pray that every time we would partake in the Lord's Supper, we would remember these things that your word teaches us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.